0: Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Hi, Gem. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you, Kenneth. Thanks for having me on here.
0: Uh, My pleasure. I start every episode with... um, What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you today?
1: It means being resilient and being able to overcome. I think many of us, um, myself included, uh, we came, immigrated here and really had to go through a lot. And it shows a lot of strength. And so I carry that with me in everything that I do. Just seeing my parents giving up everything to come here to start a new life um, for myself, my sisters, uh, that means a lot. Before
0: uh, we get started with your family history and how they arrived in the United States, um, can you tell me a little bit about the office that you hold right now?
1: So I'm the state representative for the 18th Essex District in Massachusetts. I represent uh, parts of four towns as their state representative and I'm the very first Vietnamese American woman to ever get elected in our Commonwealth. And in doing this work, a lot of what we do is um, to help our constituents, um, especially this past year during the pandemic, a lot of people lost their jobs, a lot of people needed help with their small businesses. A lot of people just needed information, especially now when we're trying to get vaccinated and prior to this when people are trying to get tested. So we're here to represent the people in that capacity, but we also... Craft laws that affect everyone in our state. And so, a lot, a big part of our work is working on policies and trying to make sure that we are doing what we can to provide people with the resources and support that they need to live healthy lives here in the Commonwealth. And a lot of folks, I think that um, when you understand state government, and you understand how these offices help you, it could really benefit people. And so I love to tell people with the work that I do so that they know you can turn to your state representative and other electives to get you what you need. Um, uh, And uh, I mean, not all of us would need everything all at once, but just given the pandemic this past year, there's a lot of increased needs. So when you know who to turn to, to point you even in the right direction, that could be very helpful.
0: Can I ask you, when you hear people say, write to your congressman, write to your congresswoman, how much effect do we as American citizens actually, how much are we being heard?
1: So, I mean, there are uh, very different levels of government, right? So we have, we start at the very local level, let's say, that's your, um, it could be your mayor, it could be your city councilor, or if you live in a town, it could be like a, a board of selectmen or a select board or alderman. there are very many different terms. And so they deal with all town things. So for instance, if you have a pothole <laughs> that you want to get fixed, you call those people and you do have a lot of influence or your light goes out you know, on your street and you need them to fix that, those are the people you should turn to. Then you move up to the state level and there are things like the state highways, um, the rivers where it it needs cleaning or you have concerns about state policies. So uh, for instance, a lot of people um, reached out to us to talk about, um, they care about climate change and we were working on a big environmental climate change bill. I want to hear from my constituents, what pieces are, are important to you? When I'm going in there to negotiate and talk to my colleagues about what needs to go into this bill, you tell me what's important to you. And frankly, we're not going to agree with everyone on everything. There are certain folks who reach out and I just have to say, I'm sorry, we're going to have to agree to disagree on this issue because this is where I see it. But when they call me, I want to answer them. I want to be able to explain to them why I take certain positions. And it does have a lot of influence because just to give you an idea, over 6,500 bills were filed this session. So my session just started. I'm trying to take a look at all of them. But when a constituent reaches out and asks, can you take a look at this bill? I will do it. And so then I prioritize. How many constituents
0: are reaching out at a time in order for you to respond to all of them? I mean, are are we looking at 100 people, 200, 500,
1: 1,000? It depends. Um, So I have to say during the pandemic, our numbers shot up exponentially because a bunch of people were reaching out about unemployment issues or they could, they couldn't get testing and they wanted to get more information and where they could go for that. And, um, a lot of folks think that, uh, think that people like us have a lot of staff, but I actually only have one staff member. So it's myself and my staff member. We were working around the clock. I can tell you could, you would see emails from me at three in the morning because I would be in meetings all day. And then I would have to go through my emails, but people needed information. So we needed to get back to them. And a lot of, um, There are other ways to communicate as well. So I utilize social media a lot. And I also had a newsletter going so I could get the information out to them that way so that people don't have to call in. But there's still people who have to call in because they need personalized help. And we try to do that as much as possible. And so it's not just the policy side, like what we saw during the pandemic was actual assistance where we had to find housing for folks, where we had to direct them to food pantries and all of that. And so that's what we do. That's our role. And on top of that, we are the people who basically have direct interactions with the different departments. And so let's say when it came to getting information out there, I had to make sure that are you getting the information translated? Is it translated into Vietnamese, Chinese, and any other language, um, Spanish, any other languages that are, you know, prevalent in our area? And so that's our job is to continue to remind folks that our people need the information, not only do they need access to the information, they need to understand the information. So um, for us, a lot of this is that type of work. And then you go to the next level, I mean, the highest level, really the federal government, they have a lot more constituents, so they have a much bigger staff and they deal with all the federal policies that we see that um, impact the entire nation. And so, Um, It's important for you to be in touch with them because if I'm seeing 6,500 bills at the state level, I can't even imagine how many bills they're facing. And they need to hear from you, what's important to you. And also that's why civic engagement is so powerful because when they don't hear from a certain constituency, sometimes they forget and you don't want them to forget about you. So that's why you should reach out to talk to them about the issues that matter to you.
0: When your folks... First arrived here how much of this stuff did they know
1: zero <laughs> they... and i can tell you that's the same even now they don't really get that involved when did and they... that's uh-huh.
0: when did they come
1: so, my family immigrated here in January of 1992. My father served um, as Sikh Wakensak in Vietnam um, prior to uh, the fall of Saigon in 1975. And so, he served eight years in a re education camp. And so, we came over uh, under the H.O. O program, um, HO program. And so, we came um, and we had to stay with a sponsor family. We had a family friend who was in Massachusetts, and so we um, were able to get some support from them. But it was a family of four, my father, my mom, ma- um, my mother, myself, and my younger sister at the time. And we immigrated to Lawrence, Massachusetts, where um, there was a community of Vietnamese people. We all came around the same time in the early 90s, and we all knew each other around that time. But there really weren't many Vietnamese Americans around because, I mean, a lot of them immigrated to bigger cities like Dorchester and Springfield and other places in Massachusetts. So we really got to know one another and the community started to build from there. But and you know, once I started school, there really weren't many Vietnamese people around, um, and we tried to um, to to build that sense of community in the school. I remember, you know, I was in like Vietnamese plays, and I remember learning Vietnamese because we had two Vietnamese teachers, and um, we tried to stick together. And I thought that that was a beautiful thing because, I mean, now we've all moved on to uh, to different places, and Lawrence has changed quite drastically. But um, at the end of the day, I think that that sense of not having anything and really relying on one another to try to learn where to go, who to turn to for help. I remember my dad said, I bought a $400 car and it broke. I didn't know where to turn to. So, you know, I had to turn to a neighbor who told him. And I, I think that that is um, the resilience that I was t- telling you earlier when we started this conversation. Yeah. Um, what,
0: what grade were you in when you, I don't mean to your date or your, your age away. but
1: Oh, no, no, I'm very public about that. I was five years old when I immigrated here with my family. Um, my sister was three at the time. And in fact, my my um, parents were around my age now. I'm in my mid-30s. And um, when we immigrated here, no, my parents didn't know anything about government. And I actually told a lot of folks this story, too, that prior to me getting elected, my parents have never stepped foot into the statehouse until their daughter was sworn into office. And my parents were never involved. In government. I think, you know, my dad tried to help new people when they come over. They, he used to help them fill out paperwork and bring them to different places to get their licenses and other things. But when it came to government, he, I don't think he ever knew who his elected officials were until I came into office. And now he's trying to stay really plugged in. And I think that's the beauty of, um, of, You know, after 2016, with the new president uh, coming in and a lot of changes, people started paying attention and started to be more civically engaged. And now with the new Biden administration, too, I feel like um, there is a wave of folks who want to get more politically involved.
0: Yeah, this is a, a crazy fact, but I'm willing to bet that your father, my father, my dad's older brother and Simone Bowie's uncle. We're all serving together. It's the same. Um, it's the same uh, police sort of um, operation uh, that these men. It, it sounds very similar, you know, because the amount of time that he did in the camps, and you know, um, it's part of that sort of. I. I research so
1: we much. should connect them all yes and there was that gentleman who was attacked in um, san francisco not them apparently he was my dad's supervisor so it is such a small small world but yeah. my dad's very proud of being at suquang and sack and we tend to go to some of these gatherings yeah. or where they get together
0: Limon's, um uncle was the top guy everybody knows yeah. him yeah i don't know if she, she ever talks about yeah, it? yeah
1: pretty i'm pretty sure now i'm gonna have to check with my dad to figure this out
0: yeah yeah so going back to, um, well, so you're five, do you remember um, anything um, in Vietnam when you left?
1: So I remember what's in pictures. My parents, right before we left, they were, um, they wanted to commemorate, like really like preserve that moment. So they had a video made of, you know, us visiting my dad's um, parents' graves. So he, he just wants that image in his head. And we went to visit my grandmother, who was still alive at the time, and said, you know, goodbye to a lot of our relatives. So a lot of this is captured in video and um, and uh, and pictures, which I'm thankful for. And actually, my dad took us on a trip to La, um right before we left as well. And my mom was like, this is the best trip ever. She's never gone on vacation prior to this. And that was like, the only thing she's ever done. Came to the U.S. and we still have a ton of pictures from that. And so, those are the types of memories that I I still hold with me. And of course, you know, my mom's um, older sister is still there. And. Um, and I, I remember what our house looked like, what my grandmother's and my aunt's house looked like. And and so those are the tidbits that I remember. But really, at five years old, right. you don't remember much. There's not much. Yeah.
0: Well, so when you were growing up um, after you got here, I mean, did you like, I want to be a politician growing up? I want to get into, you know, making rules for people here in the United States. How does that even work <laughs> as you're growing up?
1: So I can tell you, no, that I my whole life uh, I, I and I blame my father for this, and I continue to tell him this. So he uh, wanted to be in med school, but because of the war, he had to he couldn't afford um, to be in med school because it was his mom was a single mother, um, his uh, father had passed away, and so he had to drop out of med school after the first year. So his whole life he was like, well, I can't be a doctor. So one of my children needs to be a doctor, and I'm the oldest of um. A my, I have a, another younger sister, too, so of three girls. And so my whole life, my dad said, well, you know, you're the studious one. So I think, if anything, we have the most hope of you becoming a doctor. So my whole life, I thought I was going to be a doctor. And I got into college on a you know pre-med program at Tufts University and thought I was going to go straight into Tufts Medical School. And then I realized, my gosh, I was terrible at labs and other science courses. So I tell a lot of folks now, especially the high school and college, college, college kids, that, you know, it's great to have a plan, but be gentle with yourself and be okay with if you know plans change and things happen for a reason it's just as good to learn about what you're good at as well as what you're not good at because I found out I was not good at that and that was fine because it led me down a totally different route Um, I discovered that I loved uh American history I loved Asian American history I loved sociology and understanding how people interact with the world and how institutions and systems impact all of us and that was what I focused on as my major and also minored in psychology to see how the human mind processed all of this information. And that led me to the route to law school. I never thought for a moment I was going to go to law school prior to college. But my advisor said, you really have a knack for this. You should really look into it. And I did. So then eventually I, I went to law school and realized that I My original goal of wanting to become a doctor is to help people. And I realized that there is a way to do that by using the law and my ability to advocate for folks. So I decided to look into legal services, which led me to my eventual career as a legal services attorney. And for those who don't know, legal services are nonprofits and we help um, people with civil legal problems for free. For low income folks and many new immigrants survivors of domestic violence, low wage workers, people with disability, a lot of veterans, those are the people I've represented in court and advocated for and I realized that that is the way for me to help and give back I don't have to be a doctor to do that and I'm very thankful that um, I made that discovery during college.
0: Now, you said legal services, Um, that is, it sounds like its own branch. I've I've never heard that. I've I've heard of the two words, legal and service, but never heard it kind of put together the way you're putting it together and saying like, it's sort of like a branch of, uh, it's a a practice, right? It's a a way of a a lawyer being um, and it, who funds the legal services that are part of government? It, what? 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 How does it fit into American society?
1: So you have um, legal services. You're call, uh, it's called legal aid in your area. So it's called either legal services and legal aid. And many states have this. And so as a nonprofit entity, they get uh, money from many different sources. So for instance, a big bulk of their funding comes from the state. So I get to vote to fund my previous organization, which is great right. because I still work with my for our former colleagues, um, um, very often, and so part of their funding comes from the sea, but they also um, get funding from donors and um, and um, other entities, and so. People who work for these nonprofits get paid, as you know, all with other nonprofits. But with all the various funding and grants that come in, they're able to do this work completely for free for anyone who walks through their door that they accept into their program. Yep. Um, so, for for instance, I was working on a, a very specific project, and we got funded by the Department of Justice, so federal dollars. So it's not just state dollars. So we get some federal dollars going into that as well, um, and. That not only helped us to represent clients in court, but we also advocate for bills that would benefit the clients, which led me to this route to run for office because I got exposure to to that piece of work.
0: I I can imagine something like a legal services component um, funding sort of inside a a body of of legislators trying to figure out how much money goes to legal services. It it could easily take on a sort of partisan direction, right? Because legal services, in my mind, as I'm hearing it, is like helping people who don't have money, people who don't have means to defend themselves legally, which typically translate to the poor in society. Why would I, as a Republican, want to add more money to that fund?
1: Well, but at the same time, I many of my Republican colleagues, and maybe this could be specific to Massachusetts. I don't know. They would want to do that because many of these poor folks are in their district. And if legal services is not there to help them, their office would need to help them. I have to say, I'm fully supportive of legal services because as an office of two people, I refer my clients to them. So it's a very mutually beneficial relationship where I can send my clients to them to help with unemployment, finding housing, all of this work that you wouldn't want to do personally in your office. So you would want to support such entities that are doing that work, right?
0: Got it, got it. There's all these like little nuances in government and services that, you know, I wonder about all the time, but I'm, you know, just, I'm just very not knowledgeable. And I'm here to really learn about these things now. And I'm, I'm really thankful uh, that you're somebody like you exists to, to explain this. Um, and especially for the Vietnamese community, we need this sort of understanding of how the government works. It's very important. That we do right it
1: is very important and I actually I want to tell a funny story so because a lot of people don't understand what a nonprofit is because I don't know if that actually exists in Vietnam and so like I was telling you earlier in my job I helped a lot of new immigrants um especially survivors of domestic violence and low-wage workers so when they came to me and I was t- trying to explain to them it's go Guang you lie right I think that's the term they say in Vietnamese and then they look at me and I'm, they're like so are you a real attorney and i was like what do you mean they're like well if you don't make any money, like how are you a real attorney? And I was like, I am a real attorney. I have my degree, but I choose to do this work because I want to help the people. I get paid. It's just that they don't make a profit, but we get paid. It's not like I'm doing this completely free and that's my career. And so when you're talking about explaining to, to you know our people and the people I was serving, it just, it makes me smile because really the concept is very new even for someone like you who, who's here. So imagine someone who just came from vietnam Uh, i just can't imagine them understanding that because
0: there's all of these social programs that sort of it's like a buttress in society in american society that makes it really kind of move right Right. without these things supporting each other you know the the community and the and the world that we live in in america will quickly crumble and so you know oftentimes we as a community don't know what is being offered to us um correct helps to, to to keep the community Now, speaking of community, I want to talk about something that's near and dear uh, to me. Um, Years ago, I remember uh, 10, 15 years ago when I would sit at the dinner table and talk to my uncles and my aunts and my brother, and we talked politics. And across the table, my uncle made a lot of money, and he'd say, you know, I want things this way. And we could have a real conversation about, okay, well, you make all that money. You don't want to give it away. I get it. I you know, I make money, but I kind of want to give it to social programs. And so I want to, you know, I want to do what I want to do. You want to do, it's a very clear distinction. You're for that issue. I'm for this issue. We don't have that anymore. It feels like, how are we communicating with each other on a intercultural level, intergenerational level anymore, when the
1: truth is sort of all over the place? I'm stuck on that as well. I think that the the reason or the our ability before to be able to have these conversations is that we're working with the same facts. And unfortunately, with the fake news and all the misinformation that's out there, it almost feels like we're living in two very different realities. So it's very hard to have these conversations. And social media doesn't help with that either. We've all seen studies that show that the algorithm really affects what you see when you turn on Facebook or Twitter or whatever other social media uh, medium. And that's a huge problem. I, I feel like you know the Vietnamese American community is really not on Twitter a lot or on Instagram, but Facebook is certainly a place that they turn to, as well as YouTube. And you have YouTube recommendations as well. And that's a huge problem in the sense that if they are getting completely different information from what you're getting, how are you able to, to, to bridge that and be able to have um, to, uh, true discussions when you're just talking about two very different things and you're not hearing the exact same things? And I struggle um, to try to figure a way to, to address that because unfortunately, a lot of the YouTube channels said, you know, my... Uh, father's generation and maybe grandfather's generation, they are not listening to mainstream media. They're listening to Vietnamese um, YouTube personalities and others, and we unfortunately can't regulate what they say, but if that's all they're consuming, it is hard to have these conversations.
0: Yeah, we're, we're all living in echo chambers of our own sort of political beliefs, and that's a big problem in our community, in our Vietnamese community, and I don't know where this is all leading to. I mean, can does anybody have, you know, the people that you work with in politics, do they have sort of any answers or any warm leads to to, to answers that, you know, that can help this problem?
1: many organizations like Pivot and The Interpreter and others are trying to do what they can to translate a lot of what's in mainstream media into Vietnamese. But I think the problem is about consumption. And, you know, I go to go back to your point about being echo chambers. I don't know who's consuming the Vietnamese news that they're putting out there and whether it's actually reaching the folks that it needs to reach. But we, we do need to continue to advocate and work on um, interpretation and getting the right information out there, hoping that it will expand out and get to the people that needs to do. We can't just say, oh, you know, we should stop all this because it's not getting there. I think that we should double down on it and continue to find different avenues to get the right information out. Um, to people. And I'm particularly concerned now um, with the vaccines and all the, um, you know, it, our need to be vaccinated so that we can get back to a new normal and what that means in terms of addressing um, vaccine hesit- hesitancy in our community and getting the right science and medical information out there.
0: What what kinds of things did you learn while you're working in legal services all those years that you've been able to take into your political work?
1: A lot of this is um, access to information. So I have been a big proponent of language access and making sure that things are translated to folks, but also making sure that we are not only um, getting the information into mainstream media, but to deal with ethnic media. Because as someone who worked in legal services, and actually prior to that, I worked for the census 2010, when we, you know, 10 years ago when we were doing the census. And we know that, especially new immigrants, um, particularly new immigrants in communities like, you know, Vietnam, Um, Vietnamese Americans and other newer immigrants. Um, They rely on ethnic uh, papers, ethnic radio, and so we need to get the information out there that way. And also, um, in terms of making sure that people know where to turn to for resources and relying on um, getting the information to trusted community members so that the people who rely on these community members can get the information. That was especially crucial, both in my work in the census and community services to find these community leaders, to have these conversations with them and ha- have them help us um, get the information out there. And that's what I've been trying to do here. Um, when we're talking about any of these policies um, and um, the types of uh, resources and information that are available to help people, We, we don't want our community to miss out. I think at the end of the day, that is the goal. There are all these programs, there are all these grants, especially for small businesses. A lot of Vietnamese Americans are small business owners. We want you to apply for these grants. So how do we get that information to you? So I've partnered with the Small Business Association, and they've had several town halls in Vietnamese, and that's what we are going to continue to build on.
0: How did you get inspired to get into politics?
1: Uh, So I started to say that I was practicing as an attorney and I was advocating for some of the policies, including some policies to help new immigrants, policies to help low wage workers and others. And my representative was not supportive of at all of any of these policies. Uh, I was very stunned to see that not only did he not support this, he refused to even meet with me. I tried to reach him for two years to discuss this. And frankly, he didn't care about my vote. He didn't care about me and what I care about. Um, and that's not what representation is. As a representative, you're supposed to represent the people. So how can you represent the people if you actually don't talk to them but wait, and listen to what they care about?
0: But let me interject. What if you don't care about the representation like if somebody comes out of left field and you don't believe in whatever they're taught they just won't you you know you're not going to represent them right
1: no i i fully represent the people i've taught i continue to talk to people that i don't agree with i actually get back to every single person that gets back to me because what i learned is that you don't get back to them they might run against you so (laughs) i get back to everyone and i tell everyone that i represent I represent all of you. So, let's say they, I don't agree with them on policy. If they reach out to me to to ask me for help, I will still help them. I don't, I don't, you know, you come to me and say, can you help me with an uh, unemployment issue? I'm not going to look into my file and say, oh, well, you didn't vote for me. So I can't help. That's how it works. Like, so you should care about what the people you represent and try to help them in whatever way you can. And that's what I continue to do. But unfortunately that was, wasn't what the prior uh, representative did. And in fact, he, um, he, what, the straw that broke the camel's back uh, was when he proposed an amendment to allow police officers to stop anyone who looks illegal. And in my mind, I'm like, well, who looks illegal? People who are not white, people like us. That's very dangerous, especially as an attorney. I care about people's civil rights. That's a violation of people's civil rights. Just stop them for how they look. And that really prompted me to seriously consider taking a run against him because I want to build a welcoming and inclusive community for all. And that was not what he stood for because clearly he didn't care about people of color in his district. And we have a lot of people of color here and I want them to feel safe in their own homes, in their own communities.
0: So you have this idea, you have this, uh, you go up, you know, to get help from, from him and he doesn't, you know, it goes the other way and you're like, okay, I, could do your job? I mean, where does it, where does the thought go from that point?
1: I have to say that it was a very long process. So there's a saying that for women, it takes them to be asked seven times before they would even consider running for office. And I say that for women of color, some of us might not even be asked. So I think I was very I, I was very fortunate that I was asked to run because I was working with a team of folks to advocate for these bills. And when he refused to meet with us over and over and over and they discovered that I live in his district, people started asking me whether I wanted to, to, to do this. And so I started exploring um, what that meant. And for me, as someone who have always believed in being very prepared for things, I decided to take a class on um, campaigning just to see what the nuts and bolts are. And this was back in 2017. I, I told folks, I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna run for 2018, I might run for 2020, but I want to know, what what is it like? And then I also started volunteering for campaigns just to see what's on the ground and what that was like and start to build the connections that way. And um, in doing all of this work, it really is about collecting the information and seeing if it's a good fit for me and to see what strategies would work for me. Because unfortunately, the the playbook, if there is even one, is meant for people who don't look like us. Traditionally, you know, we still see a lot of white men in elected office. So for as a woman of color, what are some of the things that could work or could not work for me? And that was what I did for a whole year before I decided to run in um, early 2018. But it takes- meeting folks, like the right people who have worked in politics, who know other people who work in politics, and for them to introduce you to then others who will, that's how you build your base, and who um, you're looking for people who will support you, give you money, give you um, time. And all of that takes a lot of time and energy, but you have to put in that work because it pays off in the end when people feel like you're invested and you're bringing them in so they're invested.
0: campaign class is that like at a community college level I mean what do you
1: oh the, no so it's not anything that's taught in college or school it's they're programs that are um, set up by different organizations political organizations so for instance I did the emerge program so the emerge program is a, a non that they started primarily well their main goal is to elect more women. And so they come up with the Mm -hmm. curriculum, they raise the money, they fundraise to build these classes. And of course you have to pay some, but, everything costs money, right? And so for them, they have fundraisers and they have their own operation to be able to sustain themselves so that they can provide these programs for candidates. And I'm sure, you know, Democrat, the Democratic um, Committee, they also have their own program. The Republican Committee have their own programs. And I can tell you that the programs are very different because based on your party affiliation and the policies that you work on, different strategies work differently. Wow.
0: so interesting. And do you sort of uh, find one person that you that takes them that takes you under their wing or is it a group of people?
1: It it, it definitely should be a group of people because the goal of a campaign is to build something that is appealing to very different sectors in your community. So uh, what a what we've been advised to do is to build a kitchen cabinet. Essentially, it's like trusted people who come from very different segments who can give you advice on how to message certain things, how to present yourself in a certain way, how to tell your story in a particular way. So that's appealing to folks. And so in my kitchen cabinet, because I represent um, four towns, like I mentioned, I try to have someone from each of the four towns. So I have someone to keep tabs of the different. Things are happening in the four towns so that we can incorporate that into our campaign. I had someone who's older, I had a young person, I had moms, I had dads, I had different people working um, who are in different sectors on my kitchen cabinet to advise me on all of those things that i mentioned earlier and but it but you do have a core group of people i think i always remember the the, the ladies in my life who continue to tell me you can do this you should run and who reminded me every day that you know i have what it takes and um, so it's it's not one person but it's a very strong small group of people who you trust completely who you know you can vent to and maybe cry to <laughs> you know, things don't go your way because, you know, I talk about the campaign now, like I won. Yay. But you know, it was a full year of a lot of hard work and door knocking and making mistakes and learning from them and then moving on.
0: How did your uh, friends and family feel about you deciding to run and winning?
1: So my, um, I have to say, I'm very fortunate. My parents, my sisters were very enthusiastic and supportive. I mean, granted, we never thought that this would come, but as soon as I told them about it, they just jumped on head on. And I was just, that was so heartwarming to me and it's, and my friends as well. And I think that um, for a, a lot of people, just because it didn't come up, doesn't mean people won't support you. Like I never, I've never had this conversation with folks before. I presented to them why this is important to me and why I want to put myself out there. Even my partner who he's, he's an engineer and he's very quiet and he was concerned about, you know, our privacy. But I told him, I said, you know, I, I need to do this because this is a person, there's a person in office who really just not only opposes everything I do, he's literally harming people in the community with the policies that he's putting forward. So I can't just sit back and do nothing. And so um, after these hard conversations, and also I had to take seven months off out of my job because, oh. I, like I said, I worked for a nonprofit, so we get funding from the state. I can't run for state office while in that job because it's a conflict. So we had to have that difficult financial conversation too. Unfortunate like I keep saying, because not many people can take seven months off out of their job. But I think that if I hadn't done that, I would have. I wouldn't have won because I used that entire time to door knock on every single door um, in my district twice before the the vote, um, uh, the voting uh, weekend. And so that took a lot of time. Not to say me personally, but we built a team. And but I was out there every single day door knocking and meeting people and going to events and letting people know my platform. I'm the very first person of color to ever hold the seat. I represent a very white suburban area. And so, um, so, you know, a lot of uh, some of my colleagues who are Vietnamese Americans represent areas with a lot of Vietnamese Americans. We don't have a lot of Vietnamese Americans here at all. Um, we do have about 12 to 16% Asian Americans, but they're mostly uh, Chinese Americans who are in the uh, like, top field. And so, um, It it took a lot of effort for people to get to know me and come to trust me. And the other issue is that Asian Americans, especially women, we look a lot younger. So when they see me, they're like, wait, how old are you? And I, I was in my early 30s at that point and trying to explain to them, I'm in my early 30s. I'm an attorney. I'm very qualified. I've done this work before, but it takes meeting them in person to be able to do that. And so without the support of family, I wouldn't have been able to, to you know, take that time off and do what I needed to do to, to win the seat.
0: There are, uh, in my mind, there's people in politics. Um, and I don't know the different, you know, the different levels. But why are some Congress people, congressmen and women, more famous than Others, Um, and and I'm guessing there's seniority. There's issues that are like big in the in the country. But what what actually makes a politician in Congress rise in their sort of their stature, their their name?
1: So Congress is at the federal level and, you know, depending on what federal issue that they work on and how um, popular their campaign was. And so you see a lot of these names um, that keep popping up, like our own Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, She's in the press all the time yeah. uh, because she's taking on these very, you know, um, high, high publicity types of, um, of uh, policies. And so I think that we all have a, um, a different style about us too. You know, some of us are more um, in the public and others are quietly doing things behind the scenes. So for instance, we have um, our, our Congresswoman, uh, Catherine Clark, who we uh, she has she's not on the news a lot but she is the second ranking person up there doing her thing and so it's really depending on the style of the person just like with anyone else some of us like to be in public and some of us are uh, are not so much um, and also really depends on what area you're you're in too I mean we hear more from you know representatives from New York Boston California it's like the the states that are um that are a lot more active whereas you know some of the I would have to say, like the the states in the middle, um, some of their representatives. I don't have any idea who they are.
0: And you're a congresswoman, it, for it, so it's, it's you know, at the state level, federal level. Can you break that down for me?
1: Yes. So the congress people are um, basically their representatives at the f- uh, federal level. So I'm a state representative. So it's similar roles, we're in the legislature, but I'm in the state legislature. So I make state policies. So the policies that I help craft and create only affects the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, whereas at the federal level in Congress, when they make um, policies, it affects the entire nation.
0: Right. Um, you're the first Vietnamese American to get elected in the Massachusetts, um, and very one of the very few Vietnamese Americans um, in in the country. What does that mean to you and what does that mean um, to the Vietnamese community and how does that impact us as Vietnamese people?
1: So I'm the very first Vietnamese American woman. There was a Vietnamese American senator here uh, who was elected several um, months before me, and he's no longer in office. But I'm proud to be the very first Vietnamese American ever in elected office here. And I find that to be amazing because I got elected in 2018. Like, we've been in this country for a very long time. So we have to start thinking of why is that, that not more people are running and how does us being in office impact the community? As I've been saying uh, for the last several questions, we are here to remind folks that our community exists. We're here to constantly remind them that things need to be available in Vietnamese. What are the different concerns that affect my community that people may not be thinking about? And representation matters because it is, it allows for more robust conversations. It re- allows for us to be able to bring perspectives that may not be um, that may not have been there before because no one else has this experience. So when I go in to talk about, let's say, um public housing, I can say, well, when I came here as a refugee of five years old and lived in public housing, this was how it impacted my family. This was how the public housing allowed my father and mother to buy a home to then and send their three children to college and look where we ended up here today and that's the type of perspective that i think could be so helpful to make sure that we craft policies that are inclusive and allows us to give resources to people who need it most and to also remind people too You know, oftentimes people think of Asian Americans as a monolith and we're very well-to-do, we're all educated, we're all wealthy. Well, I'm here to remind them that Vietnamese Americans are not like that. Cambodian Americans are not like that. Southeast Asians are very different from East Asians. And what does that mean? Um, And also when we're talking about different things that happen to our community, like what we've seen this um, last year with the increase in anti-Asian hate and violence, Asian American elected officials were the ones who got the resolution passed to make sure that the House of Representatives stands against anti-Asian hate, violence, discrimination, et cetera. I'm also working on a hate crimes bill, not only to address you know, hate crimes against Asians, but all protected classes. And so these are the things that we care about because they're so personal to us and the personal becomes political. And that's what allows our country to move forward.
0: What do you have to say to Vietnamese American youth that are considering a career in politics?
1: I say, get involved. I say, start, start early. And you don't even need to get behind a particular candidate. If you care about an issue, that's politics. Get involved with that issue. If You care about gun reform. If you care about the environment, if you care about immigration, if you care about anything, be out there because this is not a time to be complicit. This is not a time to stand back. And you care about anti-Asian hate and violence, get involved, make sure your story is out there, make sure we continue to talk about this because I don't want this moment to pass by without actual reform. That's what we need, we need to address the invisibility of the Asian American Pacific Islander um, communities. Because right now we don't have a lot of representation. So we need the people to, um, to speak up and help us elect more folks. Um, I don't, I'm the first and I don't want to be the only one. And I keep telling folks that please, if you think, if you're thinking about this, if you're interested in this, please reach out. Um, I may not know the politics in your area, but I might be able to find someone who does, who can then direct you. Um, You know, just how I got uh, connected to you uh, through Kate Park. Um, There are many of us out there who, you know, you just need to reach out for us to give you the, uh, the contacts that you need to get the information that you need uh, to to get you to a place to run.
0: There's so many um, people um, in the communities of, of color that are apathetic towards, you know, politician or being pol- politically active, but we're seeing more of activity, um, more social sort of um, activism this year and, uh, you know, in in the recent years. Um, can you talk about the growing sort of Activism um, with stopping the, the Stop Asian Hate and, and the movement?
1: I, I want to start out by saying that I feel like most of us in the um, Asian American community know that the racism didn't start this last year. And I think it's very problematic that that seems to be the narrative. Yes, we have seen an increase in you know 150 percent, according to one um, data point, of anti-Asian hate and violence since the start of the pandemic because of all the scapegoating. But we all know the racism ex- have always existed. I mean, when I came over to the U.S. at five years old, not speaking a word of English, I was ridiculed, made fun of, and you know, they make fun of our food and our scented eyes, our small statures. All of these things have always, always existed. But what's different this past year and what culminated in the mass murder in Atlanta, Georgia, that really spotlighted the increase in anti-Asian hate and violence have really allowed us to have this platform to talk about the years of discrimination. And it's not just you know from the 90s, it's all the way back from the long and troubling history of, of US history from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the Chinese massacre, to uh, the Japanese internment camps, to the fact that Asian Americans were not allowed to vote until 1952. Did you realize that? Yeah, we but- were not allowed to be citizens. <laughs> it's like crazy. So what, how people can't fault us from not being politically involved when we weren't even allowed to be politically involved until much more recently, right?
0: Yeah, we, um, we as a community, uh, I, I can speak on the Vietnamese uh, behalf. I feel like our community generally doesn't, we don't want to create a ruckus. We don't want to create waves. We... Is it changing? Do you do you find that to be a different um, scenario? You know, in the recent months and years.
1: I think it's a different scenario because of the new generation of uh, folks who are born here. And uh, in fact, I was actually talking to my parents about this this very past weekend, how um, our parents' generation and others before them were in survival mode. They were really trying to make a living. They didn't want to cause any trouble because all they wanted to do is make money to send back to Vietnam. And, you know, that's not something that we have to worry about. And because we are here, we do speak English fluently. Our um, ability, to uh, to to speak up and to be more involved has changed a lot. You know, thinking back to my parents, they were working two to three jobs. Like, when would they ever had had the time to be more involved? Um, and they wouldn't even have the the capacity anyway to, to do so. And so, the new generation. Um, you know, I'm a millennial, and I feel like the Gen X, Gen Z, they are much more aware and they want to to speak out. And I'm encouraged by that. But That's not to say that, you know, I don't fault the older generation. They just had to do what they had to do to feed their children and provide the opportunities that I'm very thankful for. It's a huge sacrifice. And for them to, to, on top of that, to be politically involved is asking for a lot. Um, And so um, it's great to see that there are some folks who were able to do that. And I feel like that number is growing.
0: I have just been brought, um, Emily's list has just been brought to my attention. Um, can you explain the significance of this EMILY's List?
1: Uh, So I'm very honored and humbled to be one of the six national finalists uh, to be recognized for the EMILY's List Award. EMILY's List is an organization that uh, prioritizes the election of women and making sure we increase um, representation in all different levels of government. And it's truly an honor to be among such inspiring women from across the country. And if I win this, I'd be the very first Vietnamese American elected to ever win this national award. Um, and it means a lot to to have this recognition to show that I have done what I can to get the atten- national attention um, and that uh my work has um has been recognized as uh, effective and i really hope that people would consider voting for me so that uh, coincidentally the this week is the the um, friendly contest i want to call it so i'm among very inspiring women i appreciate every single one of them but i hope you would vote for me uh it, it ends on friday at five o'clock and it's an online contest all you have to do is click on the link choose me as the person um that you would like to vote for, and it's one vote per email address and they're tabulating all the results all this week and the, um, the final winner would be announced um, will be announced in early May but it's exciting to be um, to be in this role and it's an honor itself to be nominated but um, I, I do I think I have a, the, um, a good chance here so I hope that you all could come uh, give me that support and help spread the word to ask others um, anyone could vote you don't have to live in my district you can live anywhere in the united states. Uh,
0: to vote yeah and i i want to make this point um oftentimes um i try to dodge the political sort of uh positioning or you know where do i stand on the political spectrum um i i'm all over the place there's things that i i believe in and things that i don't believe in um so i i think for me the most important thing about this conversation so far and about you and i is we're vietnamese we're vietnamese first. And we need to amplify our voices and we need to amplify the things that we, we, we want to see in the United States. And I think that going out to vote and having you on this podcast is important because to have a signifier um, represented in, in a person like you out there will mean everything to our, our, our future generations you know, it starts here. This is where it starts. So I do hope that, you know, I'm going to get all my friends and I'm going to get as many people as I, I know to put, you know, uh, their vote in. And this is a very important moment in, in our political history.
1: Thank you so much, and I always like to say that you can't be what you can't see, and that's why representation matters. I want the younger generation to see more people like me, to see people who look like them in positions of power so that they're, they don't feel like they're limited in where they could be and what they could do, and that's very powerful for our community. As we're saying, the younger generations are out there demanding changes, demanding reform, and demanding more, and we deserve more as a community Absolutely. and as people.
0: Uh, Jump, have you been back to Vietnam?
1: I have uh, twice.
0: Oh, what what was it? What year was the first time and what was it like for you?
1: So I first went back when I was in college um, on a trip of my own to really just discover where I came from, uh, to visit my aunt and just to- See the places I kind of have vague memories of, and it was a very empowering trip. I um, I learned a lot, and actually my Vietnamese improved a lot too when I went in 2016. I was in um, I'm sorry, 2006 when I was in college, and then in 2016 I went back with my family. That this um, was the very first time that my parents ever went back to Vietnam. It took um, a lot of convincing for my father to go back because, you know, to him, he was like, I'm not going back as long as it's a communist country. But we convinced him because we thought that it was very important for him to see some of the relatives that he hadn't seen for a very long time. And unfortunately, you know, with time passing, a lot of people have passed away and I didn't want him to miss that opportunity. So when we had a, um, my cousin was getting married, we thought that that was a great opportunity to go back. And so um, my entire family went back with our significant others. And it was really such um, chaotic, but very memorable trip for sure. You can imagine traveling with yeah, a big family. And then we all came from different places. And I have a cousin in Paris. I have cousins in California. We all you know, came back. And um, I, I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that there are moments where... <laughs> you know, we all didn't get along and there were great moments as well. And so, but I think that what I got from, from that, that, um, that trip was that family really does mean a lot. And I felt like I missed out on a lot because we immigrated here, just us. So I never grew up with cousins. I never grew up with, you know, extended families or close neighbors uh, really. So when we went back and I was talking to a neighbor and they're like, I know everything about you. And I was like, how? Cause that's not how we functioned here in the US. You know, we're so isolated we're in our own homes but they live in these condos where it's just everyone knows each other's businesses and everything's just, bustling and really, um, lively. And so I took it all in and, um, I took, you know, my whole family went to, um, uh, went to Hanoi for the very first time Like my parents have never been there. And we took them out there and we got to see certain parts of the country that they've never been themselves. And so it was really, uh, it was something to really keep with us for the rest of our lives.
0: What's, uh, what's in store for the future? What can we expect
1: from you. I well, I expect to to uh, remain in this position for at least some time because I have many bills and policies that I still want to push through and um, get through um, into law. But I think that with uh, all my experience in the law and um, and my ability to um, to to work with others, I'm hopeful that I would be able to contribute in some way to build a pipeline of folks to get them into this role and um, to to build on this infrastructure and make sure that we get more women, we get more people of color elected. And so I don't have particular plans for my political future. I just know that my political future will include um, bringing others along. And that's what I've been focusing on.
0: Yeah, that's a very um, awesome sort of mindset to have because i think just like in the entertainment field i feel like a lot of the uh the older guys always have that sort of nurturing um and i always used to question it when i was younger i was like why are people helping me or why are people uh really making sure that the torch is passed uh, along and now i'm hearing it through you and other older filmmakers and and people in the media it's important because the, the, the knowledge and the, the, the things that the older generations know, know can be infused into the younger and making it better, making really making our lives better. And I want to thank you and really tell you, I appreciate the work that you that you do. Um, we're in different states, but the amount of um, dedication that you put out there is, you know, it's, it's just amazing to 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 hear and to to finally, you know, have a conversation with you about.
1: Well, no, thank you, um, Kenneth, for this opportunity. And it's also a pleasure speaking with you and learning about the work that you do. We do very different things, but I think at the same time, we, are, we share similar goals and that we are amplifying our voices. We want people to understand where we came from. And uh, we want to make sure that we are um, a support for others who come behind us. And I think that that is something that we can need to continue to support each other on.
0: Well, I hope in the near future, um, two things. You can come back and we can have another conversation at uh, another point in your political career. Uh, we can you know, chop it up and hopefully one day we can sit and do an episode in Vietnamese. That would be cool.
1: Oh, <laughs> right. I, I, I'm happy to speak to you in Vietnamese. I just have to really learn more vocabulary words. I think we can have a very um, we can have a great conversation. Just nothing political because political terms are things that I just don't know in Vietnamese. But I'm um, so and mom and um Tim Them then Emily's list award. come on.
0: Come on, come on. Come on. Come That was impressive. Very impressive. Come
1: on. Thank you. Okay.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye
1: bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trinh. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening